0: Alright, we are picking up where we left off from last week, and hopefully today will be the final lesson in this section of the Forerunners of the Faith curriculum, the Patristic Age, which spans from the 2nd to the 6th century. Now, I know I've said that a few times in the past several weeks. This is going to be the last one, this is going to be the last one, this is going to be the last one. I really think today is going to be the last one. So I um, hope you guys are excited. We're going to learn about one more key figure from the very end of this section in Forerunners of the Faith, a man by the name of John Chrysostom. Does anybody remember what his quote-unquote last name is? It's really not his last name, but Chrysostom is presented as the end of John, so a lot of people think it's his last name. Does anybody remember what Chrysostom means? Golden Mouth, John Goldenmouth. That's who we're learning about today. Uh, you're going to find out why he was referred to as Golden Mouth by the end of our time together. But before we get too far in, as usual, I am going to open us up in a word of prayer. And after I pray, I have, a, I have a set of verses that I want us to read from that I think really fits well with a lot of the subjects we're going to be discussing from the life and ministry of John Chrysostom. That passage is Mark chapter 1 verses 29 to 38. Does somebody have a Bible that they'd be willing to read that passage from? Witt's hand went up first, so he's going to read Mark 1, 29 to 38, after I open us up with a word of prayer. So um, let me pray, and then, of course, if you are not reading, which is everybody, uh, none of you guys are reading out loud except for Wit. so please follow along in those verses in your copy of God's Word after I pray. So let's go to the Lord. Father, what a privilege it is today to gather together for corporate worship and discipleship and Sunday school. I thank you for the weekend you've already allowed us to enjoy. It's been a weekend full of activities. For some youth, it's been baseball games, whether they played in a baseball game or watched a baseball game yesterday or both, Lord. Um, We're grateful for the trip you allowed us to go to the Houston Astros game and for all of the many activities and events that you Provide us with, as a youth ministry, to be able to have fun on top of the joy that we have, in just studying Your Word and gathering together for ordinary church activities on a week by week basis. Lord, we thank You as well for the students in here who were busy this weekend competing in UIL, whether it be state or uh, the regional competition for different events. Um, it's crazy to see how there's so much overlap with the calendar, and I know it's a very busy time of year for these students. So. Father, I thank you for keeping them safe and and keeping them motivated to finish their semester on a high note. Lord God, we do pray that in the weeks to come, basically a month or less, these students are are looking to finish the semester out and the school year out. And I pray, Lord, you would help them to do so in a way that is pleasing in your sight, in a way that betters their future opportunities, whether it be college or class rank or just trying to get in a good position to get a job after high school, whatever direction you lead these students in, God, I just pray that you would give them comfort and contentment knowing that you orchestrate every detail of our lives for our eternal spiritual good in Christ Jesus and for your supreme glory. I pray that be at the forefront of all of these students' minds and even our adult leaders' minds as well. You hold the future in your hands. And though we plan our ways, you direct our steps, I pray, God, that would just be a comfort to us. Would it be the, as Spurgeon said, the pillow upon which we lay our heads at night? And now, God, as we turn to consider your word today, and as we consider a godly man, a faithful theologian and pastor that you raised up centuries ago, I pray that we would be encouraged by his example, but, Lord, that we would not merely celebrate him because he was a sinner, would we celebrate your work through him, God? Because you were the one who causes any sinner to not only be saved, but to be sanctified, to bear fruit, to build your kingdom. And God made John Chrysostom, the saint we're going to be studying today, would he point us ultimately to the one whom alone is worthy and deserving of human worship and praise and adoration that is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ may we see him today in your word and reflected even imperfectly but but nevertheless reflected in the life of John Chrysostom, and may he be reflected in our lives as well as we leave these times of corporate worship and discipleship to be your servants your ambassadors your salt and light your city on a hill here in Edna, Texas to your glory and our good. We pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay. Mark chapter 1, verses 29 to 38. Witt, take that passage for us. And again, please follow along in your copy of God's Word as Wit reads.
1: he gathered up the Lord, and he healed many who were ill with various diseases, and cast out many demons. And he was not permitting the demons to speak, because they knew who he was. In the early morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left out, and went away to the secluded place. And was praying there. Simon and his companions searched him. They found him and said to hey, him, Everyone is looking for you. He said to them, Let us go somewhere.
0: Amen. Okay, so first and foremost, after reading that passage, what sticks out to you? I just kind of follow the flow of, of what's going on here in the narrative. How does it start? Jesus, right? Jesus heals Simon's mother-in-law, says he's there with Simon, Andrew, James, and John. and Simon's mother-in-law has a fever. So Jesus goes. And he heals her, right? And then the next scene, verse 32, what happens from then? What's the next scene? He healed other people. And, and what specifically? There were, there, were, there were diseases, right? But what else was he healing people from? Casting out demons. So he's performing miracles at this point. Supernatural works, right? He's, he, he's healing physical issues with Simon's mother-in-law having that fever and these other people who have diseases. He's healing physical issues. He's turned into spiritual issues with demonic possessions, okay, and then the next scene. So notice verse 30, or excuse me, verse 29, presumably it's the daytime, verse 32, it's evening, verse 35, now it's the next day, like bam, bam, bam. We've had these these major events happen chronologically or sequentially, and Jesus, again, same town, same location. He's done all these remarkable things. and then what happens? What is his disciples saying to him? Jesus praying in the early morning, Simon and, him, Simon and his disciples and other people probably come to him, and what do they say? All right, why do you think everyone's looking for him? Why do you think the reason for that is? They want to do more miracles, right? He just healed all these people. He just casted out all these demons. And then what does Jesus say in response to that? They say, hey, let's go have just a a six-month-long healing revival here where I'm going to heal every single person in this town and perform all these miracles ad nauseum. He didn't say that, does he? What does he say in verse 38? Yeah, let's go to all these other towns that are nearby so that I may preach. But notice, why does he want to do that? That is His purpose. That's what I came for, right? So guys, there was a primacy for Christ. As great as the miracles were and are, we should celebrate the miracles because they point to His deity. They show that He's God. And we should celebrate the fact that He had supernatural authority even over the demons. The demons even knew who He was. Many times in the Gospels, the demons identify Him as the Son of God, the Messiah, They say, you are the one to whom we must bow to. You have authority over us. But guess what Christ viewed as more important? Preaching the gospel. Expounding God's word. And as we look to John Chrysostom today, we're going to see a man who likewise shared that same burden. A burden to preach God's word. Which since the apostolic age to now that has been the burden of every godly called and man or woman who's been used by God. It's it's been a desire to preach the gospel and it's been a desire to teach God's word accurately. Samantha, were you going to say something? I just, I really love that he would not even commit to speak. He has that level of control over what's Amen. Did y'all hear that? That is, that is power. Jesus was so powerful. He's, he has so much authority that demons can't even speak unless he gives it to them. You and I can't even speak. You and I can't even breathe. We can't eat. We can't walk. We can't think unless God sustains us in those activities. God is the one with authority over everything he's created, including angels and demons including natural law, the stars and our lives as well. So I hope that is a means of getting your minds thinking about again, just the the power and authority of God of course, but as we apply this text that we just read to John Chrysostom I want us to think really long and hard about the primary purpose for which Christ came to preach And the primary calling that you and I have as followers of Christ to share the Word of God with other people. Not all of you guys are going to be called to be preachers, and that's fine. Um, You women are automatically disqualified uh, by being pastors uh, by virtue of, of your gender, and God has a purpose for that. But, hey, you can still teach women. You can still teach children. And all of you guys, whether or not you become a pastor, you men included, You are going to be called if you get married to shepherd your wife and to share truth with your wife and to to raise your children in the fear and admonition of the Lord. And that's what you women are going to have to do as well as wives and, and mothers. And you guys are going to have friends and family members who are not going to know Jesus. And you're going to be called to go to them in love and to answer their questions about God and His Word and to show the love of Christ to them in your actions. So we can learn a lot from today, I think, because it really reflects Christ. He wanted to share God's Word and reflect God's truth to other people. So let me start today, um, again, the way that Booznitz has structured this curriculum. He always provides a, a biographical sketch of the figure that we're going to be focusing on. This is a lot shorter than Augustine's, so I'm just going to read a brief sketch of who John Chrysostom was, and then we'll get into his theology, his ministry. We'll look at some relevant scripture references as well, and we'll see how the Lord leads us throughout the rest of our study this morning. So, John Chrysostom, uh, the approximate year of his birth is 347 AD, died in 407. Boosnitz notes that John Chrysostom was born in the city of Antioch. As a young man, he was trained in rhetoric and excelled in oratory. Now, does anybody remember why that was significant? why rhetoric was such a big deal in those days? Hannah. Yeah, so guys, who, so raise your hand if you went to the Astros game yesterday. Okay? A lot of hands up. Now raise your hand if you had fun at the Astros game. Okay, right? So it's fun to wa- it's fun to watch things that are entertaining. games, events, um, movies. Right, we, we do things for recreation. We do things for fun. In the 3rd and 4th century, even as early as the 1st century when Paul was around, we see echoes of this in 1 Corinthians 1. You know what entertainment was for them? It was going and listening to people who were really gifted at speaking. And especially the Latin language... I don't know if you guys have ever heard anybody speak Latin before. It's a very beautiful language. You can do all these plays on words and and really wow an audience with your ability to speak. Um, That was something a lot of people enjoyed doing. And um, John was very gifted in those ways. He was a very gifted speaker. Typically, they're very gifted. Like, if somebody goes on stage and just can't form a sentence, is that very in, like entertaining? Is that very interesting to go and be a part of? No. Like, if somebody's very eloquent and, and they know what they're talking about they speak with authority, that tends to draw a crowd, right? So that's what Samantha's getting at there. TED Talks, very – just Google it. I know some of you guys don't even have a clue what TED Talks are. Google it. Watch some on YouTube – and you'll see exactly what she's talking about. Very gifted, smart people going and speaking about typically complex or controversial issues, current events sometimes, and they draw a big crowd and a big following from those. But regarding Chrysostom, um, Buznitz notes in the biography In John's zeal to serve the Lord, he left Antioch to live as a monk in the wilderness. During a span of two years, he spent the majority of his time committing scripture to memory. He lived in very harsh conditions, getting minimal food and rest, and as a result, he damaged his health and had to return to the city. When he returned to Antioch, John began to preach in the main church there. In his homilies or sermons, which you can still access today, go Google homilies or sermons by John Chrysostom. You can access those today. They've survived. Many of them have survived some 1,700 years later. They're even on podcasts. Even on podcasts. Samantha's actually sent me some to listen to, or like, like excerpts from them. So if you're interested in listening to anything by John Chrysostom, I'm just sure many of you guys are dying to do so after leaving church today. You can go and, you can go and find his stuff online. But uh, John Chrysostom, his sermons that we have access to today. Um, Many of those are through books of the New Testament. It's alleged that he taught the entire New Testament verse by verse. We don't have all of his writings or commentaries, but many believe that he preached through most, if not all, of the New Testament. Um, Important to note here about Chrysostom that Buznitz states in his biography, he interpreted the Bible literally rather than allegorically. And he was careful to draw out the practical implications of the biblical text for his listeners. Now, who interpreted the Bible allegorically? What famous figure did that? Does anybody does everybody remember what allegorically means? We speak about allegory. So allegorically means to spiritualize, to find a hidden meaning in the text. Think about this. He, he said there's a there's a threefold way to interpret the Bible. The literal sense, the ethical sense, and the spiritual sense. Started with an O. Believed no that's that's an A. He believed in universalism. Very important figure. Starts with an O. O. R. Origin, There it is, origin. Uh, we'll talk about origin some more today. But, okay, does anybody remember what it means to interpret the Bible literally? So, so allegorically means to try to find a hidden meaning or a spiritual hidden meaning. When we speak of interpreting the Bible literally, what are we getting at there? Michael. Just the words, the plain meaning, right? The basic face, uh, or surface level face value interpretation. Is that
1: what we're saying when
0: we're saying let Scripture interpret Scripture? Yes, yes. We're trying to just, we're trying to exposit or take out of Scripture the plain, ordinary meaning. And Scripture gives us clarity as to what that plain meaning is. So, you have a complete different approach to interpreting the Bible from a guy like John Chrysostom versus a guy like Origen and others. Now, as I mentioned before, and there should be a blank in your workbook if you have one, the name Chrysostom means golden mouth. So I think there's one blank under the biography section in your workbook. Chrysostom means golden mouth. And as Buznitz notes, John Chrysostom is one of the most famous preachers in church history. We find in 397 AD that he was appointed the bishop of Constantinople. Having been nominated by a friend without his knowledge, how would you like to be the head honcho of a church without you actually wanting to do it in and of yourself? Somebody to say, hey, I think that person would make a great pastor. And then you find out, after the fact, hey, uh, John, you know you're preaching for us this Sunday? You're our pastor now. I think that would have been a really interesting situation to have watched unfold. Of course, as we mentioned in previous lessons, Constantinople was the capital city of the Eastern Roman Empire. And as Chrysostom preached against the flaunting of wealth, he came into contact with the Empress of Constantinople. The Empress thought that John Chrysostom was targeting her in the sermons that he was preaching, and as a result of her taking offense to what Chrysostom was preaching, he wound up being exiled from Constantinople where he would eventually die in 407 as an outlaw. So imagine that, guys. Powerful people who don't know Jesus, they can get offended when the truths being preached contradict or confront the lifestyles of sin that they're living. That's what happened with John Chrysostom. He didn't do anything wrong. He preached the Bible. There's no evidence that he even singled her out in his preaching. But nevertheless the Empress of Constantinople got offended at the plain teaching and direct preaching of John Chrysostom, and lo and behold, what happens? He's exiled, and he dies as an outlaw in exile. We think of the passage from the Sermon on the Mount. We've quoted it many times. I'm going to quote it again, because if none of you guys have received persecution for your faith, it's coming, it will happen Jesus promises it. Listen to what he says though. When you do face persecution, hardship for your faith, for speaking the truth of God's word, this is what you can cling to. Jesus says Matthew 5:10 and following, "Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad." for your reward in heaven is great, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So take heart. When you speak God's Word straightforwardly, truthfully, clearly, and people who don't know Jesus take offense at it, and they, they single you out and persecute you, even though you did nothing wrong, take comfort that you have God's favor and that He is with you in the midst of those difficulties. Or as Jesus said later in the upper room discourse, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted him, and even up to the point of death, they very well may do the same to us as his followers. But in any case, that is the biographical sketch of John Chrysostom. And as you note in your workbooks, if you have one with you today, there is a discussion box below the very first, what is that, Roman numeral 3, and here's what it says in that box. As a Christian, Chrysostom committed himself to meditating on and memorizing large portions of the Bible. Read Psalm chapter 119, verses 11 and 105, and after we read that, the question for us to consider as a group is this. Why is it important for believers to hide God's Word In their heart. So let's have somebody read those verses from Psalm 119. Um, Ellie can take verse 11 and Cy can take verse 105. And then after we read those verses, we're going to address the discussion question in our workbook. So Psalm 119 11. Go ahead, Ellie. Okay and Psi 105 is and Amen. Okay, so the the act of storing God's word in the heart so that one will not sin against God or the word being a a guide, a, a lamp showing forth the path that one ought to take in their life. What do those word pictures indicate about the importance of believers Taking God's Word and committing it to memory. Thinking about the Scripture. Meditating on it. Looking to see how it might apply to your life. What do those verses seem to indicate about that practice? What was that? It's commanded in Scripture, right? If it's commanded, we ought to do it. Even if it doesn't give us an explanation, God's Word says it, that settles it. So that's good. What else comes to mind about those verses? Let me ask some follow-up questions, some open-ended follow-up questions. Maybe your mind's going a little bit here. Is it possible to have a deep relationship with God if you don't know His Word? Let me ask you this. Let's say you like a boy or a girl. I'm sure all of you have had a crush at some point in your life. Okay. Now let me ask you this. You've had a crush, right? But let me take it a step further than that. Let's say you, you, you see a boy or a girl that catches your eye, and, and you've never talked to them before. You've, you've never had a conversation with them. You have no idea what they believe. You really don't know their personality. And yet you just say, I think I'm going to marry them. What would what would the response to that be? Right? And marriage implies love, right? If you marry somebody, hopefully you love them. I mean, obviously, previous generations, there was betrothal, and sometimes you had to grow into loving the person you were betrothed to. But in our day and age, for the sake of argument, let's just say most people get married because... They claim to be in love with the person. I love them. I want to spend the rest of my life with them, etc., etc. But if you've never talked to them, if you don't know what they believe, if you don't even know what their personality is like, if you don't know what they like or dislike, you have no relationship with them. You have no claim to love them at all. You might be intrigued by them. You might be fascinated by them. But you, you really don't love them in any meaningful sense. So the same can be said about God. Now, don't misunderstand what I'm saying. You can certainly be a Christian and have a very minimal understanding of God's Word. The thief on the cross is the perfect example of that. All he knew is that he was a sinner and that Jesus was the only way he could be forgiven of his sins. But we could also say in Scripture that that's the exception, not the norm, right? Right? More often than not in scripture we find that believers are called to grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ, to be discipled, and then to go and share other people go go share with other people what they've learned and what they've come to believe. Who is this God that you serve and that has saved you, right? So by studying God's word, this kind of pertains to verse one oh five, it gives you a guide. It's a lamp to your path. It shows you who God is, it shows you how you need to live in this world. It directs you in how you can witness to other people. So it's a, it's a light, it's a lamp, it's a guide. That's value. Now let me ask you another question. Is it possible to know, It's kind of is a dovetail from the previous question, but is it possible to know what God would have us to do if we never take the time to read His Word? To think about His Word? Like, the the Ten Commandments, I would argue, it's inherently known, right? That that law, that that array of commandments has been scribed upon the conscience of those who've been born in God's image. So all people have a general sense of morality. But in terms of specific, I'm talking specific actions that you should take as a believer in more narrow context. How should I respond in this type of a situation? How should I think about this situation cultural issue or this philosophical issue, if you don't really know God's Word, and you don't have God's perspective on those things, are you going to be able to not sin against Him in certain ways? Well, No, you can't, right? Because if you don't know something, you can't act in in such a way that you're supposed to act or behave. So when we think of taking the Word and hiding it in the heart so that you don't sin against God, we're talking about Like, I need this divine treasure, this wisdom, this revelation from God to keep me from doing anything that's going to dishonor him or cause me to not flourish as one who has been made in his image and one who is a citizen of his heavenly kingdom. So, I think that's kind of what we're going for here in this question specifically in reference to Psalm 119, verses 11 and 105. Did you want to say something, Sam? Whoa. power right there. Just
1: you're getting to know him
0: through what he says about himself. Amen. And hey guys, you know, I I'm a huge fan of scripture memorization, but I would even go so far as to say, get more familiar with the context in which certain verses or principles are taught because a lot of times people can memorize a bunch of verses and just start quoting them and they're quoting them out of context. So it's it's even better to to if if you're wanting to know, okay, what does the Bible say about how I should live as a Christian? You know, say, so, okay, well, what what passages in the New Testament or in the Bible broadly give me idea? So, some that come to mind immediately is like Romans 12, um, Ephesians 4:17 to 32, Colossians 3, and start thinking like get in your mind parts of Scripture that deal with certain topics. So when those topics or, or, or situations come up, your mind goes, okay, I know in this part of Scripture it's going to talk about that, and it's going to give me the context so I don't misrepresent what's in God's Word. That's just something that can help you guys out as well. But no, uh, Samantha, I really like that insight that you provided. The, the heart cannot love what the mind does not know. That's, that's really good. Really good stuff. Well, letter A, we're going to move on now to Chrysostom's theology a little bit here. Chrysostom and grace, letter A, and Bousinitz notes the following by way of preface. Because John was so carefully tied to the biblical text, his preaching in many places affirms that salvation is by grace through faith alone. For the following examples, look up the New Testament passage on which John Chrysostom is commentating. Then, as you read Chrysostom's comment... Take note of his emphasis on salvation by grace through faith apart from work. So how we're going to do this is we're going to have five volunteers read five passages of Scripture. And after we read those passages of Scripture, I'm going to read Chrysostom's commentary on that passage. So Hannah, you can take Romans 3.27, Lily, Romans 5.2, Emma, Ephesians 2, 8. Cy, Colossians 1, 26 to 2.8, Psy, Colossians 1.26-28, and um, Mike will go ahead and take First 1 Timothy 1, 15 to sixteen. So again, rapid fire. Read the passage. I'm going to read the commentary, and then we'll discuss. And again, if you're not reading, as always, follow along in your Bible. Yeah, whenever you're ready. Okay, And listen to what Chrysostom says on that passage. He says, What is the law of faith? How do we understand that? And he answers in this way. The law of faith is being saved by grace. Here Paul shows God's power and that he has not only saved but has even justified and led them to boasting and this too without needing words but looking for faith only. So, Chrysostom drawing out from Paul's writing right there in Romans that salvation is by grace alone through faith alone. Now Romans 5:2. There's Chrysostom on that passage. He writes, If then God has brought us near to himself when we were far off, much more will he keep us now that we are near. There's perseverance in the saints. And let me beg you to consider how he everywhere sets down these two points God's part and our part. On God's part, however, there be things varied and numerous and diverse. For Christ died for us and further reconciled us and brought us to himself and gave us grace unspeakable. But we brought faith only as our contribution. So God's side of the coin, man's side of the coin. Our response, we respond with the open hand of faith and we take hold of all the promises of God and all the work that God himself has accomplished through saving us from sin the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. Ephesians
1: 2.8
0: Very good. And now listen to this. Chrysostom says this, Even faith, Paul says, is not from us. For if the Lord had not come, if He had not called us, how should we have been able to believe? For how, Paul says, shall they believe if they have not heard Romans 10:14 So even the act of faith is not self-initiated it is Paul says the gift or the grace of God So guys you're not only saved by God's grace like God doesn't only save you by himself and for himself but even your faith is a gift of God's grace Faith is not something you just mustered up in and of yourselves. It wasn't self-initiated, says Chrysostom. Faith is from God. He gifts you faith in order that you may believe and respond accordingly. Colossians 1, 26-28. That is the mystery which has been in and for the past ages and
1: generations, but now has been manifested to his sins. Do God's will to make known what is the riches of glory and mystery among you Gentiles, which is Christ in you. The hope of glory we proclaim in, admonishing every man, teaching every man who always said, every every priest and Mary, complete in Christ. Very good. And
0: here's Chrysostom on that text. To have brought humanity more senseless than stones to the dignity of angels simply through bare words and faith alone without any hard work is indeed a rich and glorious mystery. It is just as if one were to take a dog quite consumed with hunger and the mange foul and loathsome to see and not so much as able to move but lying passed out and make him all at once into a human being and to display him upon the royal throne. That's what our salvation is. If you're a Christian, you're no, you are You nothing more than a nasty, filthy, smelly dog. Hungry, helpless, undesirable. And yet God being rich in mercy because of His great love for you, a love that you didn't earn or deserve, He set that upon you and He sent His Son into the world to live a perfect life, die on the cross bearing God's wrath in your place, to be crucified and put to death, and three days later to be raised to resurrection life, to ascend to His right hand in heaven, and to intercede at God's right hand for you until He returns in glory to the living and the dead. And then, because of the merits and the work of Christ, God then gifts you with the faith To believe in Christ. And he gives you the grace to remain in Christ. To be sustained by Christ in your faith. He has just lavished you with grace upon grace upon grace if you are a believer. That's what Chrysostom is getting at. We are nothing more than filthy, wretched dogs. And yet God is so kind and so loving that he saves us from the pit of hell. Saves us from his own wrath. And makes us trophies of his grace and loving kindness. That should lead us to worship. Okay, first Timothy one fifteen to sixteen. awesome on that passage. For as people on receiving some great work ask themselves, if it is not a dream, as not believing it, so it is with respect to the gifts of God, what then was it that was thought incredible, that those who were enemies and sinners justified by neither the law nor works should immediately through faith alone be advanced to the highest favor? It seemed to them incredible that a person who had misspent all his former life in vain and wicked action should afterwards be saved by his faith alone. On this account, Paul says, it is a saying to be believed. If I could just say it like this, there will be very good people who spend all of their eternal future in hell. Very good people, moral, upright, well put together people, successful, donated millions to charitable causes, built homes on mission fields, did so many good things, and yet they're not going to spend eternity in heaven because they never surrendered to Christ from the heart as their Lord Savior. Conversely, as Paul writes and as Chrysostom notes, there's going to be very, very horrible people who murdered people, who committed adultery, who stole, who put people down for the sake of elevating themselves. And yet, at the opportune time, at the appointed time, God snatched them out of the fiery pit of hell. He transformed them from the inside out by an act of sovereign grace. He transformed them and renewed them. And they called upon the Lord Jesus Christ in faith. And they repented of their sin and they surrendered themselves to God's right to rule over them. And in doing so, they then spent the rest of the time God gave them, not perfectly serving Him, but desiring to magnify Him in every aspect of their life, not to earn their salvation or merit favor from God, but to live out the favor they already received from God out of gratitude and love for Him. My friends, that's what Paul's saying in 1 Timothy 1, 15, 16. He's saying, if God could save somebody like me, I had Christians put in prison and put to death. I persecuted the church, but He saved me I'm the chief of sinners, Paul says. If He can save me, He can save anybody. And if somebody is going to be saved, they must see themselves as needing a Savior. God doesn't save good people. A physician, Jesus said, does not come to heal the healthy. He comes to heal the sick. And God comes to save wicked people who recognize their filth and their unworthiness. And if you are to be a Christian, you must see yourself as one who needs mercy and forgiveness. And I pray each of us have come to that place from the heart that we see our need, we see our shortcomings, and we run to Christ. And we cast ourselves upon the infinite and inexhaustible mercy, grace, and love of our Creator. That love and mercy and grace is freely offered to all who will call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. But you must see yourself needing that. You must humble yourself to bow your knee to Christ if you are to be saved. That's what Paul's saying in 1 Timothy 1 15 16. Very powerful text. Now, question for group discussion. Of the biblical passages that we just worked through, where would you start if you were explaining the gospel to someone who is not a Christian? Which of those texts would you go to? I understand the one the best, like I don't know. The
1: other ones you need a lot more context to be able to interpret it right
0: away. That's the one I picked too. Yeah. No, the the thing is, that whole passage in Ephesians two, verses one to ten, that is your story. If you're a believer, that's who you that's your spiritual autobiography. Who you were verses one to three, what God did verses four to seven, and how we live. Verses eight to ten. How we how we responded. Um that's a clear text. Michael? Oh, I thought you were raising your hand. You know, I thought maybe 1 Timothy 1, 15 to 16 would be another one just because it just shows like there's hope. You know, so many people in this day and age, I mean this probably goes back centuries as well, but I hear it all the time. I heard it last night uh, from the gentleman who was leading us in the concert. He said, he says, and you've heard it said like this as well, but he said it like this. Um, many of you guys are thinking, you just don't know what I've done. You don't know how bad I've been. My friends, that's where you've got to get to before you can even hope to be saved. So if somebody's at that point, you can point them to a text like 1 Timothy 1, 15, 16, and say, friend, you're absolutely right. You, you, You are a terrible person, as am I. But there's hope. Look at the word. Look what God promises in his word. Look what Paul says. If God can save a wretch like me, he can save you too. You know that's the thing. You know, if you you don't want somebody when you're evangelizing somebody, if you have them where they think they're a pretty good person, and, and you know, like God would, I don't know if anybody's ever said this out loud. Maybe someone has, but it can it can come across this way, like, well, of course, like God would, you know, he's loving, he would save me, like, right? Like you can't have somebody there to to, to respond appropriately. It's not going to be genuine or authentic. That person's got to be broken over their sin. Nobody ever got saved thinking, yeah, yeah, I, th- I think that God would just save me. He's loving. You know, as, uh, as Steve Lawson said, nobody struts through the narrow gate. Nobody struts into heaven through the narrow gate. We crawl in with humility as beggars and God being a good and gracious Savior Close us with the perfect righteousness of Christ and welcomes us in with a warm, loving embrace and says, What Christ did is enough for you. I have set my favor upon you because of Christ. Enter in to the joy of your master. That's salvation. Nobody struts in there, nobody's worthy or deserving of it. In any case, now we're moving to letter B, Chrysostom and truth. Chrysostom in truth. its notes, Like Augustine, Chrysostom affirmed that God's word is without error. Commenting on John 17, 17, he said the following. Who would like to read that from the workbook? That, just a sentence right there. Go for it, Henry. Amen. Do y'all remember what we refer to? We say that God's word is without error. What's that term? Inerrant. Inerrant. Inerrancy. Very good. All right. Chris awesome also affirmed the authority of Scripture, noting that all arguments must be supported from the word of God. If you would like to read that from the workbook, the next little paragraph there. Go for it, Lily. So he's saying there that, you know, if you want to leave an impact on somebody, you better show how what you believe takes root in God's word, because God's word is the ultimate authority for what anybody should believe and how anybody should live, because he's the creator. He has the right and the final say. Likewise, Chrysostom affirmed the sufficiency of Scripture. Now, look, we've come full circle. We saw how Augustine affirmed biblical inerrancy, biblical authority, and biblical sufficiency We've also seen that from Chrysostom. Who wants to take that next paragraph? All right, go for it, Samantha. Listen to this text. You guys should remember it from Encounter. All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. You know, I've said this many times, but you guys don't need anything more than the Scripture. You're going to spend your whole life studying that book, and you're not going to master a scintilla of it. I'm not either. Nobody has. We don't need to to, to, look for hidden signs or, or seek out mystical experiences to discern what God would have us to believe or how God would have us to live. You just need His Word. Cling to it. Meditate on it. Study it. Submit your life to it. Watch how God will bless you spiritually for doing so. God never promises physical or temporal blessing on His people. He oftentimes promises persecution, hardship, and trial. But what He does promise you is this. If you seek Him with everything you have, by going to His Word, He will reveal Himself to you therein. He will draw you to to Himself through His Word. So if you want to be close to God, go to His Word. He's given it to you. He's preserved it for all this time. May we not neglect it. Now, following those excerpts from Chrysostom, Boosnitz notes this, and this gets to what we were kind of talking about earlier, differentiating between origin and Chrysostom. He says one important point to add regarding Chrysostom has to do with his method of interpreting the Bible. Does anybody remember that term? Talk about the method of biblical interpretation it starts with an H. I'm going to be teaching at the co-op in Inez. Hermeneutics, that's right, Hannah. Nice. So his hermeneutic Chrysostom's method of biblical interpretation it differed from that of Origin in that Chrysostom took the Bible at face value. Said differently, he interpreted the Bible in a literal fashion, in a straightforward or clear fashion. Who wants to take the next excerpt under letter B? Emma, go for it.
1: Which
0: one? Uh, just the, the last one that says chrysosim starts with the words, For we ought Very good. So, uh, next paragraph. You've got four blanks there. If you've got a workbook, this is good um, in terms of just thinking through Chrysostom's method of interpreting the Bible, which is the method that I take, which is the method that Brother Robert takes, which is the method that just about every orthodox and faithful Bible teacher takes. Note this, as Chrysostom explains, proper Bible interpretation involves a clear understanding of what the passage means. Sound Bible study involves looking at details like the words. First blank, words. The flow of the argument in its context. That's what Chrysostom meant by the sense. The author's intent, third blank, the aim of the speaker. And fourth blank, the historical setting. That is the cause and the occasion. So blank number one is Words. Blank number two, in its context. Blank number three, intent. And blank number four, the historical setting. Does that sound familiar to what y'all have been learning these past roughly two years in youth? Guys, this is from the fourth century. A guy who lived basically sixteen to 1,700 years ago, and we're studying the Bible the same exact way. That ought to be, I mean, I don't know, maybe I'm just a nerd, but that ought to be kind of cool for you guys. Like, people just like you, who lived literally almost two millennia ago, are reading the Bible just like we read. And vice versa, we read the Bible just like they read. Same that them-
1: To his people and always intended that we would know. So it was never his intent that we
0: would be unfamiliar with what the scripture was, or else he wouldn't have quoted it himself. Right. Yeah, you don't need to look again, you don't need to look for voices from God or, 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 or try to seek out these mystical experiences or signs or you know that. You also don't need to look at the Bible like it's just a book of riddles that you've got to unpack. Like if you if you look at the words. If you look at the historical context in which the book of the Bible that you're studying was written in, if you know something about the author, now sometimes we don't know who wrote certain books. That is what it is. But you also have the rest of scripture. Scripture interprets scripture. You can make sense of what things say in the Bible. Words, historical context, authorial intent, or just the whole canon. Allow scripture to be your guide, and you can understand what's being written there. And guys, God is not a God of confusion or mystery in the sense that when He speaks, He speaks with the intention that we can understand what He's saying to us. He wants us to know who He is and how we should live. So you can go to God's Word with that expectation. God is a gracious Creator. He wants me to know Him. He wants to have a relationship with me. So let me come to His Word expectantly so that I might understand what he's trying to say. Now, again, this is direct contrast to Origin. Remember, Origin said when you when you interpret Scripture, there's the literal meaning. That's just the first stage of Bible interpretation. Now we've got to unpack two more layers to get deeper into the hidden meaning. I've got to find the ethical meaning, and then I've got to find the spiritual meaning. And. Only then, when I've looked at all three of these layers of a passage, now I know what God was trying to tell me. In other words, don't just take the surface level understanding. Look for all these mysterious, hidden, esoteric interpretations. And then, then you know what God wants you to know. I would wager, standing in line with the like of a guy like John Chrysostom, it's not the best way to interpret God's Word. Interpret it plainly and derive the clear, straightforward te- uh, meaning of the text. Now, putting it all together, I want to read this last bit under Roman numeral 4. This is going to conclude the patristic age section of Forerunners of the Faith. I know it's been a long journey, but we finally got there. I'm grateful for all that we've been able to glean over the past several months. Busnitz notes by way of conclusion, Much more could be said about both Augustine and Chrysostom not to mention other leaders in the post-Nicene period. The goal of this lesson was to highlight the commitment expressed by these early Christian leaders to the gospel of grace and the word of truth. As has been noted, these convictions resonated with the Protestant reformers in the 16th century. For the reformers, the gospel of grace was expressed as follows. follows, Sinners are justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in the person and work of Christ alone in accordance with the authority of Scripture alone. Their commitment to the authority and sufficiency of Scripture is similarly captured by the phrase sola scriptura, which of course was the theme for our most recent encounter. And Lord willing, we'll look to explore more about what the Reformers believed in Lesson 10, but as Busnitz notes, and I completely agree how he concludes, evangelical Christians... Can rejoice in seeing a clear testimony to these foundational truths from two of church history's leading voices dating back to the 4th and 5th centuries and we would do well to reclaim these truths like Augustine, like Chrysostom may we likewise stand firm in our commitment to the inerrancy authority and sufficiency of scripture so we might be the men and women God's called us to be in Christ but with that being said it's been a joy to work through this section of Forerunners of the Faith. Lord willing, next week, we'll begin the Middle Ages. And hopefully, it won't take us 15 or 16 lessons or however long it's taken us to get through the patristic age. But, hey, we will take as long as we need to. This is really great stuff. It's thoroughly biblical. It's faithful to the testimony of church history. Hope you guys are gleaning precious insights from these studies. But let me pray. And we'll draw our time of Sunday school to a close. Father, thank you for your faithfulness to us in getting us through the, the second major portion of Forerunners of the Faith. We we looked at the apostolic age for a really long time to get started in this curriculum, and we've spent maybe even more time in the patristic age. And God, there's just so much truth to glean from your word and from Faithful men and women who have gone before us in generations past, who have proclaimed Your Word and championed Your Word in their life and their preaching. God, we've barely scratched the surface of all that could be said and all that could be gleaned from generations past. And we'll, of course, never come close to exhausting the riches of sacred Scripture. I pray this would humble us, God. I pray it would help us to recognize that we could devote 24 hours a day, seven days a week to studying your word and studying church history and we, we wouldn't even come close to understanding everything you've done and your purposes undergirding all that you've done and all that you've said in Scripture. So would we be humble servants as we leave here today? Would we be even more in love with you, your Son, and your Holy Spirit as we contemplate how far you've gone to save us from our sin and to gift us with your word and to allow your Holy Spirit to indwell us so that he might take scripture and use it as a means to make us more into the likeness of Jesus Christ and to help us live a lifestyle that is in keeping with Christ's likeness I pray, Father, as we leave this place and as some go home with their families, I pray for safe travels for them and a blessing upon their families and loved ones as they rest and enjoy time together on this Lord's Day. And for those of us who are preparing now to go into corporate worship, I pray we would worship you in spirit and in truth, that you would keep our, our minds attentive and our hearts submissive to the songs that we're going to be singing, to the prayers that we're going to be offering, to the word that Brother Robert is going to be preaching. And God, would we leave this place transformed by all that we've done here today so that you might be glorified in us and us satisfied in you. We commit all to this to you in prayer, in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.